Our passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. So if you'd like to turn there and follow along, that would be great. be good to have the passage open in front of you. It's on page 826 of the Blue Pew Bible, if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures with you. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together here this morning would be pleasing in Your sight. O oh Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. At the end of this passage that we're looking at, uh, we have one of maybe the most important questions that any of us in here could answer. Uh, Whether you are a Christian here this morning or not, this is a critical question for you to answer, and you have some answer for it. And that question, as you'll see in verse 10, is, who is this? That is the question for us. There was a pastor in Michigan who wrote a short article a few years back on the many different ways that we can answer this particular question. Here are a few of what he says. There's the Republican Jesus, who is against tax increases and activist judges, for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who is against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. There's gentle Jesus who was meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair and walks around barefoot wearing a sash while looking very German. There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. Finally, there's good example Jesus, 
who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. Okay, uh, caricature, yes, but a whole lot of truth in that too, right? Uh, what I want you to notice about each of those caricatures is that there is a connection between who we believe Jesus to be, on the one hand, and then what we expect Him to be doing in our world and in our lives. There's a connection between His identity and our expectations for Him. And those expectations that you and I have of Him are powerful. They're extremely powerful. And what we celebrate today is Palm Sunday. This is where the Christian church around the world celebrates Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is the end or the beginning of the end for Him, right? This is the last week of His life. And so it introduces us to that. But it does something else for us as well. What this passage does is tell us a lot about the expectations that these people had of Jesus as King. And it exposes them in a big way. The same is true for you and me. We have these sort of assumptions that we inevitably bring to the table as to who Jesus is and what He came to do. And it is absolutely critical that we would bring those assumptions and those expectations to light because it has everything to do with how you view the world, what you expect the Christian life to be, what you expect Jesus to be doing in your life. So this is a huge question for us. Uh, We've got a tradition in our house that we stole from Aaron Jeffrey uh, that we do every night at dinner, and it's called Sweet and Sour. So what we do is we go around the table, and everybody at the table gives their sweet part of the day, which was the high, the best thing, and then the sour part, which would be the worst thing or the most difficult thing of your day. I think what that does sweet and sour, can represent two directions that you probably tend in your lives as a whole. So you might be one who is, uh, on the one hand, all sweet, where you sort of view the world with this eternal, uh, unqualified, even naive optimism about everything, right? And so you think, Jesus is king, that means everything is going to be great. There was a, a British theologian who talked about being in a, ca- in a taxi and was telling the cab driver what he did for, uh, for a living and all this. And the cab driver says, well, the way I figure that is that if Jesus rose from the dead, that everything else is just rock and roll. That's sort of the everything is sweet perspective in life. But then what happens is that pain enters, struggle enters, tragedy occurs, your life doesn't go as you expect it to. And you can then go to the other side where you have the all-sour approach to life, where you're overcome with a a jaded cynicism that views all of life with this sort of skepticism. And you kind of think, okay, Jesus is king, but is he really? And if he is, why is he allowing all this to happen to me right now? Why doesn't he do something about the pain, the suffering, the brokenness, the evil of this world? And so you fall into this trap of a jaded cynicism. And I think most of us live in that tension between those two poles. Uh, Anne Lamott has a great quote that I think gets at these two extremes and trying to live between them. She says, We are an Easter people living in a Good Friday world. An Easter people living in a Good Friday world. 
So wherever you are on that spectrum, whichever side you tend towards, and most of us for numerous reasons tend towards one direction or the other, what Matthew does in this passage is he confronts those expectations, those assumptions of who you believe Jesus to be and what it means to follow him as king. And here's what he says. He says that following the humble king means becoming a people of cross-shaped hope. Or to put it in terms of uh, Anne Lamott's quote, following the humble king means living as an Easter people in a Good Friday world. That's what we're called to. We're going to look at two points. These are both in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. The first is this. The king calls us to be a people of hope. And we see this in a few ways in the passage. Uh, We first see this in how Jesus presents himself. So Jesus wants us to see him as this Messiah king. That is what this passage is all about. He doesn't just come out and say it, but his actions in this passage speak way louder than than his words because everything he does is dripping with royalty. This has king written all over it for us. It starts even where this place is in verse 1. He's at the Mount of Olives. This would have been a place of messianic expectation for every Jewish person. Because in Zechariah 14, it says that on this day, speaking of the Messiah, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. So Jesus picks this location. People are thinking, He's doing something significant here. And then you see it too with Jesus riding in on a donkey. That just seems, it probably doesn't seem weird to us because we're so used to it with Palm Sunday. But for people seeing that happen, that is a royal action taking place. Because what usually happened is once a king conquered a particular place, he would ride in on an animal. And so this all over uh, ancient literature of kings riding in on an animal to say, I am the conquering king. I am king of this place. And then Matthew makes this connection for us with Zechariah 9 that we read earlier. And you read verse 5. He comes out and says to us, your king is coming to you. So Jesus, as He commands the disciples, He says, go to this town, find this donkey and this, and this foal, and bring them to Me. We're going to do something here. He knows exactly what He's doing. And He wants us to recognize that as well. Why is that such a big deal? This is such a big deal because the entire heart of the Old Testament is this hope and longing for God to return as King. That's what they wanted more than anything else, that that God would return as king. He's going to put the world back in order again. He's going to deliver Israel from her oppressors and from her enemies, and God would be king again. The world would be what it's supposed to. And so what Jesus is saying as he comes into town in this way is that I am the one that you have been longing for. I am the one that you've been hoping for for all of these hundreds of years. I'm here to fix what's broken. I'm here to fix what, to mend what's torn. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And it's because of that that the crowds respond the way they do. Because they know exactly what he is saying by his actions. And so they recognize he is fulfilling that prophecy. And so he is this long awaited son of David. And so what do they do? Verse 8. They lay down their cloaks and their branches. Again, this is the way to celebrate a huge victory. Uh, The way one commentator puts it is that this is sort of like rolling out the red carpet 
or like a ticker tape parade where if we saw that, we'd go, something big's happening here. This is a celebration, and we're right to celebrate. And then Psalm 118, he quotes in verse 9, where they shout this phrase, Hosanna, son of David, which is saying, please save us, son of David. That's a liturgical phrase that they would use at temple worship in their longing for God to return as king. What's the point? The point is that the hopes and the expectations, everything that Israel had been longing for, were coming true with Jesus coming in as king. He was coming to rescue them. He was returning as king. And they were right to celebrate. So they're right to recognize that this is a glorious, hopeful message that is coming to them. And that's actually what should be our response as well. Uh, Jesus calls us then to, like these crowds, be a people of hope. And so if you're a person, as I kind of gave those two extremes at the beginning, that, that's going to tend more towards in the sour direction, where kind of things are sour all the time, this is what you need to hear. Jesus comes to confront that cynicism that you hold. He comes to push back and reorient your expectations of Him. What is cynicism? Cynicism is the outlook on life that says, I am going to expect the worst to happen, and when it does, I'll either be right, and if it doesn't, I'll just be pleasantly surprised. I'm going to be right or pleasantly surprised when things go wrong. Uh, The best example, maybe, of cynicism is Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Uh, He is the epitome of cynicism, with the rain clouds following him around, with quotes like this, Good morning, Pooh Bear, if it is a good morning, which I doubt. And then he loses his tail, ties on a red balloon, and says, Sure is a cheerful color. Guess I'll have to get used to it. He expects bad things to happen to him. That's his outlook on life. That's who he is. How does this develop for us? Cynicism develops because you have been hurt or wronged so many times that you are determined to not let it happen again. And so what you do is you start expecting things to go poorly because then when it does, you're already ready for it. That becomes your outlook on life. It is pervasive for us. It is in the air we breathe. It's in the humor that we love. And I think one of the most fascinating things about cynicism is that it is totally socially acceptable. Uh, That's why we love the onion. We love irony. We love satire because we are cynical. And this bleeds into our lives all over the place. It's in our relationships. We view our marriages and even our spouses at times thinking, this is never really going to change. There's no real hope for my marriage getting better. Or you view even this desire to be married with great cynicism because you've been hurt so many times and you've been so close to having the relationship that you longed for only to have it come crashing down again. We view God with cynicism. We think that because of what we have done, there is something that's so bad or so dark about us that there's no way that this God could actually love us and be okay with us let alone love us and lavish His care and concern upon us. 
Or we think, I'm so locked into this sin pattern right now that there is no way that this is ever going to change in any substantial way. And so we become cynical about who Jesus is and what He could actually bring about in our lives. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you have a general cynicism towards religion in general. That anything that I or anybody else standing in this place is saying is going to be viewed with some suspicion and skepticism. It's all over the place. A couple problems with this, though. Cynicism is deceptive and that it seems safe to us, but it is actually lethal. Because what's happening is that we build these walls of cynicism around us. We view the world with this suspicion and this skepticism in the hopes that no pain will break through. That we can protect ourselves from harm in that way. But what's actually happening is that cynicism is killing us from the inside out. It's a self-protection that is actually more like a slow self-execution. We become hardened, bitter people when we are cynical. If this is your tendency, you've got to know that it is dangerous. And maybe the biggest problem with cynicism is that it is a denial of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus did not come to inaugurate a kingdom of cynicism. His kingdom is one of hope. And so if that's you this morning, if you see yourself more as one who is viewing the world through this sour lens all the time, in an effort to set up these means of self-protection, then you need to hear that what this passage calls you to do is to turn from that cynicism and recognize and embrace this hope of who Jesus is and what He actually came to do. What we're about to celebrate this week is that our King, this Savior, was raised from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And what this does is provide the utmost hope. It is the most hopeful thing in the world. And so if that's you, if you tend in that direction, go to those passages in the Bible that speak of this hope. Go to Romans 8 or go to Revelation 21 and camp out there. And as we enter this Holy Week together, really get into Easter. Embrace the hope of what we celebrate. That's what Jesus calls us to. And if you're one who tends in that way, give yourself to it. You need to hear that Jesus knows the pain that you're enduring. He understands the pain that you've suffered in the past and the reasons that you are cynical now. But what He wants to do is call you out of that and come to Him and embrace Him to receive this hope. That's what He calls us to. If you are that sour person, uh, this is where I see myself. I need to hear this part. So He calls us to be a people of hope. And we see that in this passage, in the way that the crowds were rejoicing in this way. However, we know from what's coming that they don't fully understand the real kind of king He is, right? Uh, they don't understand what's about to happen in this final week of his life, and there, but there are hints of it in his entrance. What he's doing is he is coming into Jerusalem where he will suffer and he will be murdered later this week. That's what's happening. And so secondly, that informs the way that we should view our own lives and that the king calls us to be a people that is shaped by the cross. 
And this is a bit more subtle in this passage, but there are these signs of Jesus' humility and His meekness, as Darwin pointed out. And those run contrary to most of the expectations that people had of Him then. And so we see this again in that Jesus presents Himself as a humble king. He rides in on a donkey, right? Uh, One commentator says, like, the car you drive says something of who you are. So you see somebody pull up in a minivan. What do you think? Soccer mom, right? Uh, Somebody riding in on a donkey would sort of have that effect too because these other conquering kings that came in were on these war horses. Jesus comes in on a donkey, this beast of burden. It's a humble, humble animal, and He intends for it to come across that way for us. Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, as we said, that describes this king as humble, and meek. And there's actually a portion of this prophecy in Zechariah 9 that talks about the king being triumphant and victorious. And you know what? Matthew leaves that out of his quote. He wants to emphasize Jesus' humility to us. And so, as many have said, this is more like a humble entry than it is a triumphant entry. And that's what we need to see. And then notice this, verse 10 the words and the actions of those in the city. This is a separate group from the crowds, I think. The crowds are those who are very excited about Jesus. Those in the city, in Jerusalem, look to be a different group of people. And what do they ask? They ask that question that we started with, who is this? And the way they're asking that is not like a, huh, Now I wonder who this is. This is really interesting. It's more like, who does this guy think he is? Because everything he's doing right now looks like he's coming in as this king and you don't want to do that with the Romans around. You are asking for trouble to make this big show of your kingship. Romans are not happy about that when that happens. And we know that this is exactly what happens later in the week. That he stirs up something in this city and he's going to be crucified for it. But what we need to see is that this kingly image that Jesus is putting forth is not one of military triumph. It's not one of overthrow in the ways that we would expect. It is one of humility and of meekness. What does this do for us? It pushes back on your view if you are a person that sees everything as sweet, that never has anything sour to say, that fights to always, always find the good And always ignore the bad. Jesus confronts that. He confronts that naive optimism, that putting on of the rose-colored glasses and viewing all of life through that. Um, At my dentist's office in Indiana, as is typical in dentist's office, they have the stuff on the ceiling for you to look at while you're back, stuff in your mouth. And the one that I was always in, and it killed me every time because I'm a cynic, uh, it had this sign of the embrace life. Do what you love, you know, in different fonts and all that all over. Make the most of every moment. Forgive even when it's hard. Be content with who you are and on and on and on. The basic message being everything is great in your life and you need to think positively about it all the time. Uh, The obvious problem with that is that it's calling us then to ignore the reality, the very real aspects of our lives that are full of pain and of suffering. And they're saying, don't let the world get you down. 
I think we carry this into our faith a lot of times as well. Uh, And we have this expectation. Matthew Smith mentioned that the night that he did the concert here. That we have this expectation that Jesus should make us happy all the time. And it's even in some of the uh, some of the songs that we sing. We don't sing this here, but you know the hymn "At the Cross," kind of old sing-songy revival sort of song. Uh, there's a line in there that says, "And now I am happy all the day." And the problem with that, of course, is that it's not true, right? Uh, I'm not happy all the day. Uh, I endure real hardship. I'm not happy with who I am. And that's not Christianity to say that I am happy all the day. And I think we we carry that into even our expectations that Jesus could, should, and must deliver us from our suffering or our struggles immediately. We have no category for Him to just be with us in the midst of our pain and our suffering. That's, I think, where we see this optimism. A couple problems with it. One, as we've mentioned, this is a denial of the very real brokenness of the world that we live in. It denies that and tries to ignore it. The Bible, on the other hand, does not call you to ignore that suffering or that brokenness or that evil. The Bible is painfully honest about our suffering. Jesus calls us to look into the face of evil and call it what it is, not deny it and act like it's not there. Second problem, and maybe the more significant one, is that this optimism, this naive, unbridled optimism, is a denial of the crucifixion of our Lord. Jesus was raised from the dead, but He was dead. He was killed. He was murdered. That actually happened, and then Jesus can then say, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his own cross, And follow me. This is the path that He calls us to as well. And if we look at the world through rose-colored glasses and keep trying to just see the good only and always, then we are denying the path that Jesus has called us to walk. Which is one that will inevitably include suffering. That optimism is a denial of that. And if that's you, if that's your tendency, then as we enter into this week together, sit in, meditate upon, bask in, weep over the death of your Savior for you. And His call to identify with Him in His suffering. But allow that, though, to liberate you from this incessant need to explain away what's wrong to explain away and qualify the pain and the suffering and the sin that still exists. Do away with that. That is not what Jesus wants. Go to the cross with Him. He says in Mark 10 that He, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That verse comes at the end of this passage where He says, This is the story of your life as well. The Gentiles lorded over them. They abused people and used people. I'm calling you to be a servant of all. And that's going to be a way downward and it's going to be painful at times. But that's what I'm calling you to because I am a crucified Savior. I'm not one of naive, 
optimism. And so the cross for us is at the same time something that is utterly, utterly awful and horrible. It's disgusting. It's repulsive. And at the same time, it is the absolutely most beautiful thing in the entire world and in all of history. It is both of those things at the same time. And that is the character of our life with Jesus as well. We experience the depths of sin and brokenness and pain, our own and that of others. And at the same time, we are confident, confident, certain that we will be raised with Jesus. That we will share in His resurrection life. And even that in the midst of that pain and suffering, this is what Paul says in in, uh, Philippians 3, is that when we identify with Him in His suffering, it makes it that much more certain that we will, even in that moment, share in His resurrection. That even in the midst of that darkness and that pain, you will get a taste of this resurrection life that is ours in Jesus. And so what He calls us to in this passage is to eschew and renounce both of these extremes. That cynicism that comes easy that cynicism that's acceptable and funny and fun. And also at the same time, that unbridled optimism that you're working so hard to keep up. We serve and follow and worship a suffering Savior. A crucified Lord. One who was raised, but one who was literally and completely dead. And it's on that path that we are to follow. Even as we enter into this week together, we are this Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We're going to experience the sweetest of the sweets and the sourest of the sours this week. And I would encourage you to give yourself to all that we're doing even here this week, to walk through Jesus' new commandment that He gives on Thursday in the Maundy Thursday service where we deal with the honest honest fears that we have of failing and the denial that Peter uh, exhibits for us and our own tendencies in that direction. And then come Friday, where we listen to these seven final words spoken of our Savior as He hung on the cross, as we mourn His death and celebrate it at the same time. And then come Sunday where we celebrate and feast and rejoice at what is the best news and most hopeful thing that has ever been or ever will be. Give yourself to that. Have your expectations of Him reformed and reshaped this week. We pray for us. Father, we are grateful that the Bible is as real as it is and that the Gospel takes into account our life experience in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom. We thank You for that. Lord, we pray that You would push back against these tendencies where we find them in our hearts and that we would embrace Your Son as who He really is, our crucified and risen Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.